Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Well, good morning, church. This time, we'll dismiss our kiddos who are third grade and under. Miss Ashley's in the back of the room in the Blue Redeemer Kids shirt on. Uh, they can follow her down the hall for their lesson this morning as we open the scriptures for our sermon. It's like a herd of elephants every Sunday, isn't it? Oh, goodness. Well, I just want to say a brief word before we open, uh, before we read the scripture together this morning. Uh, so grateful for our elders. Um, you know, I've been talking with them just about the levels of fatigue in my own life since April, uh, and about a month ago or so, they, in, they pastored me, uh, they shepherded me, encouraged me to consider taking this sabbatical. Um, it's an uncomfortable space for me, I'll just be transparent with you, um, and so I, uh, I, I'm, I, but I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity, looking forward to it. Um, you know, some have asked, you know, are you guys, where are you going to be? And I'm, uh, my kids are going to be in school, uh, and so uh, we're going to be here. Um, but we will probably will worship other places some Sundays and with other pastors that I'm friends with here in town, uh, just to be refreshed and sit under their teaching and uh, to enjoy worship with that other body of believers uh, across town. Um, but we'll be, still be around. Uh, our kids are going to still be here in student ministry, hanging out. My daughter's moving up in the student ministry this year, and so she's going to be here on Wednesday nights uh, and participating in activities and things that are going on. We're still going to be attending a life group uh, to stay relationally connected to those folks that we've been uh, investing in over the course of these last, this last year or so in this small group that we've been a part of. Um, but I, I do look forward to being able to uh, just take some time and, and catch my breath a little bit. Um, we recorded a podcast uh, on Friday uh, with Matt and Justin talking about the sabbatical, the rationale behind it, um, and just some of the things that have led up to this point for me. And so when it, that releases, I encourage you to listen to that. Um, and instead of rehashing all that this morning, I just point you to that resource whenever it comes, becomes available. Um, but... Uh, all that said, I, I appreciate our elders and the way that they've led me to consider taking this time uh, to recharge. Uh, if you've got a Bible this morning, open with me to Colossians chapter 3, is where we're going to be today. Colossians 3, we'll read verses 17 and 19, and uh, come back and unpack it a little bit together this morning. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, it'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have a copy in front of you and want to follow along there please feel free to do so. Colossians 3.17, the Apostle Paul writes these words, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is God's Word. Uh, this week and next week, we'll be in these verses taking a look at God's design for marriage. 
And so I hope you join us next week as well, if I don't run you off this week. Um, But this week we're going to look at what God says to men in these verses, next week what he says to women. Um, And so we'll we'll consider this passage for the next two weeks. But um, I just wanted to open today with this image, kind of maybe some of you can relate to this. Um, When I was a kid, I used to love globes. Uh, I don't know if you had an affinity for globes or not. It seemed like maybe every child has an affinity at some point for globes. I remember my kids going through that. We actually bought my son a talking globe at one point where it had a pen. You could point to different countries on the map. It talked about the people who lived there, some of the customs and the culture and things of that nature. But whenever I was a child, I remember my favorite globes were those that had, uh, like on, on, the, on the topography of the, the, the locations, had like mountain ranges and ridges or had little indentations where there were deep valleys and rifts. Right? I used to remember, I love, it's like a text texture type thing. I, uh, I love touching those and feeling those ridges as they rose above the surface, right? In addition, I, I love going out and seeing mountain ranges. I don't know anybody who doesn't enjoy that vast view of a majestic peak rising above the surface. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, uh, but I can imagine it's a very moving experience as well to stand at the threshold of that deep rift in the earth's crust and look down below at the river uh, so many thousands of feet beneath your feet, Right? Um, in a world with elevation changes like that, it creates what's called relief, topography-wise. Right? Relief. It's that difference between the heights of the mountains and the depths of the valleys. And I want you to imagine the, the, the fact that those types of, 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 ge- of topographical features, right, uh, they are, create prominence because of the contrast between them. If you're driving from here to Colorado and you drive through West Texas and you see nothing but nothing, right? Just dirt and little scrub trees for hundreds of miles and then you cross over to the border into New Mexico and then you make your way up into Colorado and off in the distance you begin to see the prominence of those mountain ranges rising above the earth's surface. It creates this contrast which causes us to stand in awe oftentimes. These massive mountains or these deep canyons See, without that prominence that's created by contrast, which is relief, without that type of relief, right, there would be no awe or amazement at the Mariana Trench, right, that lies deep beneath the ocean surface or the peak of Mount Everest, which rises high above the earth's surface, right? That contrast creates awe and amazement. But we live in a world and in a culture that is trying to flatten the topography of humanity, right? The pervasive movement within cultures around the globe is trying to flatten the relief, the contrast, the prominence created by the differences with regards to who men were created to be and who women were created to be. We live in a place where folks would say they are interchangeable, right? Masculinity and femininity are interchangeable. You could trade one for the other. So as a result, it's a place where there are gender-neutral bathrooms. This isn't a political statement. It's just a statement of reality, right? It's a place where people assume being raised by two moms or two dads is equivalent to being raised by a mother and a father, or a place where those born male can become female and those born female can become male, and where that transitioning is celebrated, applauded, and awarded because it's seen to be something that requires a great deal of courage to go against the grain of society. That's the kind of world that we live in when it comes to understanding biological sex or gender. 
right? That it's interchangeable. That to be one is good, but to be the other, uh, you, you, can, you can just trade them back and forth like baseball cards, okay? But the Bible, I would say, presents a very different picture of gender. See, in his book, Manhood Restored, Eric Mason says this. He speaks of the contrast between how God created the rest of the created order and brought those things into existence by the word of his mouth, but how he formed humanity with his hands. Listen to what he writes. He says, God formed man. This term is rich in depth and meaning. God handmade man by sculpting him from what he had already created. The word formed means fashioned or shaped or forged, usually by plan or design. And the term implies an intentionality. Forming isn't haphazard. To form is to devise, prepare with a thought in mind about future actions with a particular plan of action as an extension of the forming an object by artistic and careful design. God is not a mad scientist, he writes, unknowingly experimenting with creation to see what he would come up with. He is a thoughtful, careful, loving artist who knows exactly what he's after in the process of creation. This means God did not haphazardly create man, but was fully aware of his expectations and desires of his creation before he ever began. That's what it means to be formed in the image of God. See, beginning in Genesis 2, the sweep of Scripture presents a picture that God has great intention with all that He's made. In Genesis 2, prior to the fall, we see man, that God created man to have dominion over all the earth, and the woman as the, was the only suitable helper for him. And yet, when you fast forward into Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, you see God would curse creation, and as a result of the curse, that wives would desire their husbands, we're told in the text, and that husbands would rule over them. And so, essentially, what God designed in creation in Genesis 2 would be defaced by sin in Genesis 3, but then would eventually be restored by Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. When he comes and he says that Christ, through his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension, that God redeems the pattern for what was the picture, what it was supposed to look like as a reflection of God's glory and the relationship between Jesus and his people that was to be shared between husband and wife before the fall is distorted by sin in the fall and redeemed by Christ in his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Right, so it's, it's, we can't go back and say, hey, listen, masculinity and femininity are a result of the fall no they were designed by god before the fall we were created male and female they're not interchangeable they have been distorted through the fall and there's all sorts of layers of what i would call cultural graffiti that have been layered on top of layer on top of layer and depending upon the culture that you grew up in determines the type of graffiti that was layered on top of masculinity or on top of femininity but in christ both biblical masculinity and femininity are restored they're redeemed and jesus is in the process of putting people back together in his image that he intended from the very foundations of the world and he's like, what does that have to do with Colossians 3? <laughs> it has a lot to do with Colossians 3. See, from this particular passage this week, I want us to focus on what it means to be a godly man and husband, particularly from verse 19. Next week, we'll take a look at the command to wives, but this week, we take a look at the command to husbands. Because as those, these two things are exercised, they create this prominence by contrast, this relief, like mountains. 
and valleys, like rivers and oceans, like forests and plains. It's this contrast that's meant to complement one another. See, as we work our way through Colossians, we've come to this text this week that's commonly referred to in the, the, the academic circles as a household code. And so in the ancient world, it spelled out responsibilities within a Roman home, the responsibilities of husbands and wives and children and servants. And so one thing I find interesting is that as Paul teases out the implications of the gospel to show the sufficiency of Christ for all of life, he shows us, he borrows this common form of writing from his day to show us that even in this new humanity that God is making, a place where there's not Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised and barbarian, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all, even here in this new humanity humanity where all these walls have come down, there's still order and responsibility. And I want to say this morning to those of us who are men in the room, including myself, and listen, I, most days, if I'm being real honest, I feel like the least qualified person to get up here and teach on this. But alas, you're stuck with me. So I want to say to us men in the room this morning that if we're going to live out our responsibility in our homes in the order that God has designed, then we must embrace God's call to be a good man. Be a good man. Listen, in our day, there are two different, distinct terms used to describe men. You can be a real man, or you can be a good man. Listen, there was a sociological experiment done some years ago with cadets at West Point, in which they asked them a series of questions about masculinity or, or manhood. And they asked them this question. I found it very insightful. It said, when you're attending a funeral for a man, and the person delivering the eulogy where they're espousing all the virtues of this individual. Whenever they say these words, he was a good man. What comes to your mind? These are all cadets at West Point. What do you understand that to mean? And instantly they said words like honor, duty, integrity, doing the right thing, standing up for the little guy, an instinct to protect and to provide, to be responsible, to be generous, to be servants, to give yourself away to others. In response to their responses, the, the, the sociologist asked, where did you learn this? And to a person, unanimously, they said, it was from the Judeo-Christian heritage and a part of the cultural air we have breathed here in the U.S. for uh, centuries. And then they asked them this question. Now what if we tell you to man up and be a real man? What what do you understand that to mean? And they said that's completely different. These same individuals said to be a real man means to be tough, to be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, don't ever let anyone see you cry or demonstrate emotion, play through pain, be competitive get rich, and have many sexual conquests. That's what they said, to be a real man, to man up. Now, the contrast between being a good man, even in the eyes of these West Point cadets, and a real man, could not be any more stark. Could not be any more stark. In a cultural era era that we live in, the concept of being a real man often, listen, it involves masculinity without morality. 
So when you hear the term, you've probably heard it circulating in some circles, toxic masculinity. I believe that's what's being referred to, masculinity without morality. And masculinity without morality, it leads men to repress their emotions. It leads them to be cold and small-minded and become selfish and controlling and dictatorial. They end up using women in their lives rather than loving women, and they treat women as their property and see them only as, as domestic servants or a means for pleasure or the way to secure progeny for themselves. These men are indifferent, they're apathetic, they're lazy, unreliable, forceful, insensitive, and abusive. That's where toxic masculinity comes from. It is masculinity without morality. It's a version of masculinity without morality. But I want to say this morning, before we move any further, that masculinity itself is not the problem. God designed men to be men. It is masculinity without morality that has all sorts of layers of cultural graffiti layered on top of it where the cultures over the course of history have said this is what it means to be a man rather than taking the cues of what it means to be a man and a husband from the scriptures. They took their cues from the culture. But I'll say this, God designed masculinity to be like a beautiful sculpture. And over the years it's been vandalized so that it looks and feels nothing like the artist's original intent, and yet underneath, there is still God's good design. So in our text this morning, as we we get into Colossians 3.19, Paul lays out what I believe to be a critical element of being a good man, and Paul says it this way, to be a good man, you must love your wife. You must love your wife. Now, let me just say a word to those of you who aren't married in the room, okay? You're like, what does this have to do with me? Okay, Um, quite a bit, all right? First, you may not be married today, but likely you aspire to that one day, okay? Uh, God does indeed call some to celibacy and singleness, but those tend to be the exception and not the norm. Most of us aspire to and desire to become husbands and fathers if you're a guy in the room, right? Even having a conversation with my own son who's 15, he talks about having a family one day, okay? He'll speak of that. We'll talk about those kinds of things. When I become a dad or whenever I get married or those types of things. So most of you aspire to become a husband, become a father one day. And if that's the case, if that's on your radar for the future, then there is no better time than now to begin preparing for the journey that you're going to take in order to be that kind of good man who loves his wife. Right? You, it's not that you walk down the aisle and you say, I do, and all of a sudden a switch gets flipped in your mind, and all of a sudden you become something you were not preparing to become all along. That's not how it works. Right? It works day after day as you're, in, as, as you're growing and learning and investing in yourself and becoming the kind of man that would be a husband who's able to love his wife one day. So if you're not married, listen, this does have to do with you. All right? So in verse 19, Paul calls husbands to a kind of love for their wives that he says elsewhere in Ephesians would reflect the love that Jesus expressed for his church. The word love in Colossians 3 is the Greek word agape. Some of us are very familiar with that term. Right? It's the only word used for love in Colossians, and the only other time it's used in Colossians is in reference to God's love for his people. 
And here now, Paul's saying that the love that God has for his people, for his church husbands, you ought to have for your wives. And this kind of love, listen, men, it is a sacrificial, a self-giving, other-oriented, and service kind of love. It's a love that sets the needs of the one who is loved above those wants of the one who is doing the loving. It's why God would send his one and only son, the son whom he loved, with an eternal love to be the ransom for many so that those who believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. God has loved this way. God so loved, in this way God loved, toward this end God loved, that he gave himself away for those whom he loved. That's the kind of love that men are called to exhibit towards their wives. And men, if we're to love our wives with this agape kind of love, and there's three things I want to challenge us to and encourage and inspire us to to do this morning. And the first one is this. If you're going to love with this agape kind of love, fellas, we've got to give up childish ways. See, that version of toxic masculinity, it holds on to childish ways. Think about how children behave. Okay? Some of you have children in the home, you're like, I know very well how children behave. Children are impulsive, aren't they? So often they do not think about the consequences of their words or actions before they speak or act. All right? And this is the same with real men rather than good men. They don't think about how their words are going to land on other people before they leave their lips. They don't think about how their actions are going to impact those around them before they initiate them. They're impulsive. Children also are selfish. I don't know a single child who's not. Okay? That's why they scream at 3 a.m. because they're hungry. Because they want what they want and they want it now. Right? They take what they want when they want it and they oftentimes don't think of anyone other than themselves. It's a part of that maturation process, right? They have to be trained and taught not to just think of themselves, but to think of others. And listen, this is the same with real men rather than good men. They only think of themselves. Everything is centered around what they want, their desires, their agenda. Children are emotionally underdeveloped. Right, they pout when they don't get their way. <laughs> Maybe yours don't. When you cross them, right, either you get a burst of anger, a flood of tears, or even sometimes from an early age, the cold shoulder. Right? They just don't engage with you anymore. And the same is true with real men rather than good men. When you cross them, either there is a fit of rage an outburst of emotion with words that wound, with actions that do damage, or by cutting off all emotional output and withdrawing into their man cave for the rest of the week. Listen, in the early 1980s, there was a term coined by pop psychology called the Peter Pan Syndrome. It was used to describe men who seemed to never grow up or mature from childhood. 
So like Peter Pan, who, right, he lives on an island, okay, where he basically uh, <laughs> casts off all adult responsibilities, along with the Lost Boys, it's a very fitting name, okay, the Lost Boys, who he leads to do nothing but play and have fun all day, and the adults in their lives are envisioned as pirates who want to steal their freedom and fun, right? That's a great image. And and psychologists coined this term to describe oftentimes young men. It's a metaphor that describes the patterns of the behavior that that they, they, they refuse to accept responsibilities. And individuals with this type of complex, they demonstrate childlike characteristics that most people grow out of during their adult years, and yet these individuals continue in them. Some characteristics of it are things like low motivation and lack of interest in work, trouble with commitment, being unreliable, difficulty making decisions, emotional instability, lack of accountability to anyone, and then always blaming others for their own shortcomings in their own personal growth. So it's always somebody else's fault. An entitlement and expectation for others to take care of them. Fear of and refusal to accept constructive criticism. Procrastination. They don't engage in household chores or they don't finish them. They're chronically, as an adult, unemployed or underemployed. They rely on others to manage their finances. They prioritize fun and play over important obligations. They struggle or refuse to define relationships. Some of the women say, amen. They avoid attempts to address conflict in relationships. They won't get involved. They befriend other immature individuals of a similar mentality. And then listen to this, substance abuse or addiction specifically intended to relieve negative internalized thoughts and feelings because they've repressed their emotions so deep they they don't know how to respond other than medicating them. It's a Peter Pan syndrome. And if this isn't a description of the cultural real man, I don't know what is. But when the Bible speaks of being a man, listen, it's not suggested that you be a man rather than a woman, right? Or acting like a woman. It's calling you to be a man rather than acting like a child. So if you want to use the words man up in your vernacular, right? Essentially, in a biblical context, that just means grow up. Grow up. Take on responsibility. And I find it very interesting that this language of putting childish ways behind us shows up in 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul's speaking about the nature of Christian love. Husbands, love your wives. 1 Corinthians 13 is not about husbands and wives. It's about the nature of Christian love, agape love. And listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. For knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So don't spend your life with focusing on all these miraculous, charismatic gifts, Paul says, but love, love deeply, love well, love with an agape kind of love. And then he says in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And listen, men, if we're to love our wives with an agape, self-sacrificial, service-oriented kind of love that puts their needs above our wants, then listen, we've got to learn to put childish ways behind us. So let me ask you a question, fellas. Where may there be remnants of childish ways in your own life? If you ask that question to your wife, what would she say? If you asked it of your friends, what would they say? Second, we have to sacrifice our wants for our wives' needs. Listen, I remember in college, a friend of mine came to me late one evening and his girlfriend was really upset with him, okay? And uh, he begins to you know, tell me the backstory, okay? And so he's unfolding all the nuances of the conversation that had taken place, but essentially the nuts and bolts of it are this, right? His girlfriend had become upset by something that had taken place, called him, asked him to come meet her so he, they could talk through what was going on um, and how she was feeling about it and what, what, was, what was taking place in her mind and in her heart. Well, he proceeded to tell her on the phone that he was in the middle of a very important video game. <laughs> and that, that when he was done right, conquering some make-believe land, uh, that then he would come meet her and they could visit about it. And he was like, why is she mad at me? <laughs> oh boy. All right, and we can laugh about that kind of a story, but so often it can be our story as well. And it may not be video games. It may be golfing. Maybe fishing or hunting or dirt biking or man caving or isolating ourselves in the garage or the shop or even ministry. So often the currency of love is time. It's time that we give away. Are we willing to sacrifice what we want to do with our time for what our wives need us for in their lives? When was the last time you asked your wife, fellas, what do you need more of from me? What do you need more of from me? Give up childish ways, sacrifice our wants for our wife's needs, and then third, be sweet to her. Now, listen, I know this sounds like a Hallmark card, okay, rather than Bible, but I'm going to show it to you. Listen, if loving your wife is the positive command, the prohibition that Paul gives on the heels of that is do not be harsh with her. The image here is literally do not make her bitter. Bitter. 
The verb literally means to produce a bitter taste in the mouth or in the stomach. Now, when something bitter passes across your taste buds, right, it settles into your stomach and easily can turn your stomach and make your stomach sour. If you've ever had that experience, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I remember taking a mission trip years ago to Russia, and we were working in the interior of Russia, and we were in a, 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 a public school in Russia hosting a soccer camp. Okay, I had no business teaching kids how to play soccer, but I was there to share the gospel with them, right? And so we were running around the soccer field, and the school lunch ladies were preparing food for us in the school cafeteria. Now, if you think school lunch food in the States is bad, go enjoy some school lunch food in interior of Russia, okay? I remember one day coming to the table and then putting a plate of food in front of us and just looking at the thing and going, I'm not sure what that is. Right? It was like this, it was a, a gray colored meat with this iridescent film that was kind of on top of it, sparkling. And so through my translator, like I asked, what, like, what is it that I'm about to enjoy? And they said, boiled liver. <laughs> All right. And li- I can remember literally having to hold my nose in order to get that food into my mouth, pass it through my olfactory senses and into my stomach because it was, not only was the odor foul, but the taste of it was just, oh, make you want to gag. But out of, out of hospitality to those who were hosting us, I felt obligated to eat the food they were preparing for us. Listen, I was on that trip with some high school kids and they were like, nope. <laughs> So here I am, the leader, like trying to set the example. I'm going to be like, receive the hospitality of the host culture and eating this boiled liver. But it made my stomach turn. If you've ever eaten something that makes your stomach turn like that, you know that experience. It makes you nauseous. And listen, the kind of harsh, toxic masculinity in our culture, it is a way of being a man in the world that makes the stomachs of women turn. It's bitter. So rather than turning her stomach with harshness, listen, delight her taste buds with gentleness. The same gentleness Paul calls us to put on in verse 12. Charles talked to us about it last week. This gentleness is a bridled strength. It's not a weakness, but it's a bridled strength. Every time I think about that concept, I think of the great uh, lion in C.S. Lewis's whatever, however many books he wrote. In, in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? I think about uh, Aslan, right? As he interacts with the children and as you see him, particularly in the, the cinematic depictions of this great lion. If you'll, if you'll remember in the first book in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and that movie that was released based on it, toward the end of the movie, when, whenever the white witch comes to meet with him in the tent, because Edmund had betrayed his family into the hands of the white witch for some candy, okay? And when, when and the white witch comes and they have this conversation in the tent and it always gets me every time I think about that scene or see that scene because she says, you know the laws, what they demand and what they require. Blood. And he he says, I know. And he says, rather than giving Edmund, I'll give myself. 
So they agree on this pact and she leaves the tent and she begins to march away with her army and she turns around and calls back to, the, to him as he's standing at the door of the tent. And she says, how do I know you will keep your word? And if you've seen the movie, you know exactly what happens. He lets out this big billowing, like home-shattering roar with the way that they captured that in the movie, this deep bass rumbles where you hear it through all creation. What is that? That's strength standing. And yet whenever he speaks to little Lucy, he speaks with this tone and this temperament like a grandfather. That's bridled strength. And listen, that is sweet to the taste. When someone knows that there is strength that can be exercised to protect and to provide, but it will never be turned on the one that it's protecting and providing for. That's sweet. That's not bitter. That's what it is to love your wife. We can go all of the kinds of places across the scriptures and say much more. I just want to say what's here today. He says, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. To do that, we've got to put away childish ways. We've got to grow up and take responsibility. We've got to put her needs above our wants. And we've got to have a sweetness about us that's exercised through gentleness. Listen, finally this morning, if we're to love our wives and be good men, listen, it must flow downstream from a resolve, church, to fix our eyes on the glory of Jesus himself. Listen, it is no coincidence that the command to wives in verse 18 and the command to husbands in verse 19 come directly on the heels of verse 17. What did we read in verse 17? Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. To do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Listen, it doesn't just simply mean that we utter Jesus' name on our lips, but rather that all our actions, all our words, all our deeds are consistent with the nature and the character of our Lord. So as we act towards others, as we speak with others, those words that come off our lips are consistent with the nature and character of Jesus. The things that we do towards those who are around us are consistent with the nature and the character of Jesus. So listen, look at the flow of argument. Ultimately, our aspiration to love our wives, men, and be good men does not terminate on our wives. It's not ultimately for their sake. Ultimately, it terminates upon the Lord. Ultimately, it is for His sake, for His reputation, for His fame, for His glory. And this kind of sacrificial love, it flows downstream from that resolve to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the text, there's a break for a new paragraph, and perhaps even in some of your translations, even a new heading at verse 18. And yet, in the Greek, there's no such break. 
It moves from one sentence to the next with seamless flow. There's a flow of thought here. and As we close, I want you to consider this. It begins with a laser-like focus on the glory of Jesus, his name, his reputation. So then every word that is spoken Spoken is uttered with a view to honoring the name of Jesus. Every word that's spoken in every relationship, even in our marriages, and especially in our marriages, ought to be spoken with a view to honoring the name of Jesus. Everything that you do to and for your wives, men, ought to be done to honor the name of Jesus. So fix your gaze on His glory. Because everything flows downstream from that. We said several weeks ago, it all starts with this identity that we've been giving, given. And so we put certain things off, we put certain things on, and then in the very nuts and bolts realities of life, men, we love our wives. And we're not harsh with them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that as you pledged yourself to us in covenant love, that you gave and you gave and you gave to us. May that be the foundation for all of our giving to others. And in particular this morning, the foundation for us men to embrace a biblical view of masculinity that is rooted in self-sacrificial love for the most intimate relationship that we will ever know on the face of this earth. Father, I know there are still childish ways left in me I know there are times in which my wants are elevated above my wife's needs. And I know there have been times in which my actions have not been sweet, but bitter. I thank you that even as I reflect on those times, I'm reminded of your grace, of your forgiveness, of your love for me. And I pray that as our men reflect upon those times in their own lives, they'd be reminded of the same. But Father, may your grace to us cause us to lift our eyes and gaze upon your glory and the glory of your Son, and be empowered by your Spirit to do better, to be good men. To your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. 
In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.